0: hey everybody it's the with a bullet podcast i'm matt golden um we're going back to regular charts here um back to the basics um classic with a bullet or something like that uh, the chart for this episode is the top 40 alternative songs from september 10th 1994 and this is actually going to be the first part of a six-part series which i'm calling the decline of alternative rock radio i'm starting out with 1994 this week um the next episode will be a chart from 1995 and i'm going to keep going until i wrap it up with a chart from 99 so why the decline and not the rise and fall well i could have theoretically started when the modern rock or alternative charts were first published back in 88, but I'm not really enamored with what was on the charts at that point. I mean, it was basically just the cure, 10,000 maniacs, um, Susie and the Banshees and stuff like that. And it was basically just still like the cure and Susie and Banshees until like 92 or so. Um I didn't really want to do four episodes of that until Grunge happened. Also, 94 was more or less when I jumped into it. Um, I was living in Northeast Ohio at the time, and going into 94, there wasn't really that much of a presence for alternative rock radio. We had one station, uh, which was the end out of Cleveland, and they were more or less still playing like Susie and the Banshees type stuff. um I couldn't really listen to it on college radio. Um, we did have college radio stations at akron and kent state but one was an npr affiliate and one was just a rap station uh, but that all started to change um by the fall of 94 which would have been right around when this chart came out um the end started playing more typical 90s alternative stuff um, wmms the buzzard uh, which was the big rock station in our area um, switch formats to alternative and uh rock 107 um out of Canton which was a hard rock station more or less switched to alternative rock by default because alternative bands were really the only bands that were making rock at the time and this was also right around when I got my first car um, which only had an AM FM radio so um if I went anywhere I had either one of these three stations playing and this series actually wraps up right around when I got rid of that car. But anyway, um, this is more or less what I consider the peak. Um, every chart after this one is going to be worse the, than the one before. It just keeps getting bad. Um, most of the stuff is tolerable until about 1997. Then it basically just like drops off a cliff after that in terms of quality. Um, Also, where we're starting out here, it was still somewhat diverse. I mean, it's kind of all over the place, really. I mean, there's some acts on here that you wouldn't have thought would have ended up on an alternative rock radio. Um, There are some holdovers from the Susie and the Banshees, um, Dave Kendall era of alternative rock. Uh, There's some figures from 80s alternative underground basically coming back after grunge to get a piece of the pie um you have the second wave of grunge coming in um some singles from like the second album or like the follow-up album to where these grunge bands became big and of course you have some acts that no one has listened to or even thought about since 90- 1994 um but anyway um let's get into it here with number 40 and number 40 is Debuting on the charts, it's Bad Religion with Stranger Than Fiction, um, punk. That's punk with quotation marks. There was um, starting to get a seep into alt rock radio, and we have a few more examples of this coming up. These guys were kind of '80s underground holdovers. Um, the lead singer of Bad Religion, Greg Graffin, actually. Is from Madison, where I'm recording this, and um, he has a PhD in zoology. Um, he's taught at both UCLA, UCLA, and Cornell. And um, basically, whenever there's like a break in like their touring schedule, he goes back to teaching. For some reason, a lot of SoCal punk frontmen were also PhDs. I have no idea why this is. but but that was the case and um this was the title track from their major label debut and the song seems like it came out of a contest to see who could jam the most words into a two minute punk song um the whole gist of it basically being that real life would make a really horrible novel and it was written by um guitarist um brett gerwitz or gerwitz I just said the same thing twice there um, who actually left the band shortly after this to um, focus on running his indie label epitaph, um, which was taking off at the moment in large part due to the success of a band that we have coming up twice later on on this chart. But I don't remember hearing this one on the radio at all. I mean, they did play the later singles from this album, which were infected and 21st century digital boy, fairly often but um these guys never really did it for me so anyway um moving on to number 39 um this is also debuting on the charts and it's pato banton uh, featuring ub40 uh, with baby come back and this is a cover of the equals hit from 1968 we had this at number one on one of our british charts that we did probably like two years ago or so. And it takes all of the bite out of the original. I mean they may have sampled the guitar on it. It sort of sounds like they did that, but it's really faint and you can barely notice it. And Banton um doesn't actually sing any part of the original song. Um Allie Campbell, who is the lead singer from UB40, handles all that part. And Banton basically just comes in and toasts a verse in the middle. Um, And in that toast, he not only wants his baby to come back, he also wants his Bob Marley CDs and his Sensi back. (laughs) But I'm kind of baffled that this even made it on here. I mean, were they playing this anywhere? I mean, it definitely did not make it onto the alt-rock stations in Cleveland. But, I mean, who was playing this? I mean, I I thought that it might have been on, like, a soundtrack of something, like, alternative, like, Reality Bites, which was actually out right around then, but, I mean, it wasn't, so, I mean, that was really the only way that I thought this could have possibly made it on here, but that wasn't the case, and um, it was only on here for one week, though, Um, it did end up going to number one in the UK, which actually matched the equals chart position, but, I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, it's not really that great of a cover. But anyway, um, moving on here to number 38, another debut. Uh, This is Pearl Jam with Yellow Ledbetter. Da da dee da, da da dee da, da 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 um that's all i have to say for that one um anyway number 37 um this is also debuting um this is sarah mclaughlin with good enough um the alt stations in my area were really trying hard to make sarah mclaughlin happen in 94 um but it didn't really work at the time um she was always on these new music on the end or what's new on the buzzard promos and um they would play the singles and then you would go and like, listen to like the top seven at seven show. And she wouldn't be there. I mean, I listened to that show every single night and she did not make it once despite the fact that she got played like practically uh, every hour. She did become a star a couple of years after this um, started will of Fair and so on, but the people of Northeast Ohio weren't having her back in 94. And this one wasn't, played nearly as much of a as a song that we have coming up but this one is the better of those two number 36 um mc 900 foot jesus with if i only had a brain bump but i don't but boom da boom Um, i don't remember hearing this one at all on the radio um first time i remember hearing this was on beavis and butthead Um, And even then, I pretty much only remember hearing it on Beavis and Butthead. I mean, all stations in Cleveland avoided non-Beastie Boys rap like The Plague in 1994. But um, MC nine foot, hundred foot Jesus. His real name was Mark Griffin. Um, He was based out of Dallas. Um, He got his start in the early 80s as a member of the new wave group, The Telephones. Um, And... He got back into the music in into music in the '90s, mainly because he thought that the stuff that was like coming out on alternative radio wasn't up to his standards. So he wanted to change that himself. Um, his stage name came from a sermon by Oral Roberts, televangelist. Um, and that how basically what Oral Roberts said was that he had a vision where a 900 foot jesus came to him in a dream and commanded him to build a hospital at oral roberts university and it became a it became a pseudonym for a rapper but anyway um let's see um if i only had a brain was his only song to reach eddie chart Um, It ended up peaking at number 25 here. Um, The album that it came from, One Step Ahead of the Spider, was actually the last album that he ever released. Um, He gave up on music in the late 90s and uh, got a pilot's license with the intention of becoming a flight instructor, but apparently um, that didn't pan out for him. Um, He uh, ended up working at a bookstore after that, but um, he came out of retirement and started performing as mc 900 foot jesus a few years ago but that may have just been a short-lived thing i could only find two dates in dallas and a couple of festival shows on him for um, his sat list fm page and there hasn't been anything since 2018 so who knows if he's ever going to come back as mc 900 foot jesus but anyway uh, number 35, another debut here. It's um, Sarah McLachlan again um, with Possession. Um, typical Sarah McLachlan song. Um, the lyrics for this mainly came from letters that came from two of her obsessed fans. And one of those guys actually tried to sue her later on for a songwriting credit um, but before it ended up going to trial, he actually killed himself. So um, obviously he didn't um, win the trial there or get any money from Sarah McLachlan, um, even though he probably shouldn't have. Uh, but this was her first Hot 100 hit in this country. Um, it also went to number 26, in native Canada, and it made it all the way up to number four, which... Um, Based on airplay, I could totally see that. But um, like I just mentioned, um, she wasn't really that popular in Ohio yet. Uh, number 34, Magna Pop was slowly, slowly. Um, they were led by Linda Hopper and Ruthie Morris. Um, they were from Atlanta and they had links to REM. Um, Linda Hopper was actually a classmate of Michael Stipes at the University of Georgia and um she was also a member of the group um okay along with uh, michael stipe's sister linda and um matthew sweet um, a guy who is going to be popping up at some point during the series but because of that um stipe was a big booster of this band they ended up opening um up for rem on part of the monster tour in 94 and this song and the album that came off of um, Hot Boxing were produced by Bob Mould, and it sounds an awful lot like Bob Mould's current band, Sugar. And there is loud guitar finger scrapes all over this, uh, something which was kind of an early 90s alternative cliche. Uh, we actually have a much worse example of this coming up, but I don't remember hearing this like, on a song or as prominent on a song after like 1997 or so but anyway i i couldn't really tell if like they have a refrain in the chorus where they go they do it all the time they do it all the time i couldn't figure out if that was an homage to the violent femmes or not it might have been um they might have been like too old since they would have been in college and like The early 80s to have made like a violent femmes homage i mean maybe that might have been something that a younger band would have done but anyway i couldn't tell if that was an homage to violent femmes or not but um it ended up peaking at number 25. um they did have one other kind of minor alt rock hit a couple of years after this with um open the door and um the song was also featured in the Drew Barrymore Chris O'Donnell rom-com Mad Love which i've never seen before but it was i'll i'll, I'll just take their word for it but anyway um number 33 uh, the spin doctors you let me uh you let your heart go too fast uh, this was the first single from their turn it upside down album which was the follow up to their I'm a huge pocket full of Kryptonite album. Um, And this was actually their last charting single. And it sounds like typical Spin Doctors crap. I mean, nobody was really into these guys anymore. I mean, everybody got sick of like Two Princes and Little Miss Can't Be Wrong back in 1992 or whatever. I mean, nobody wanted to hear Little Miss Can't Be Wrong Part 2, which is basically what this was. Anyway... Uh, number 32, Lisa Loeb with Stay. Uh, this was from the Reality Bites soundtrack, which is a horrible movie, by the way. And she was on the soundtrack mainly because, um, Ethan Hawke, um, who played the main slacker doofus in the movie, and he was also her neighbor in real life. So, um, she played this for him. He took the song to Ben Stiller, who directed the movie, and he liked it enough to include it um supposedly there was like an urban legend that was going on around at this time where um the other big hit from that soundtrack which was big mountains cover of baby i love your way was only included on the soundtrack as a condition to get stay on there um basically like whoever was like the music supervisor forced stiller to put that on there to Put Lisa Loeb on there, or at least that's how the story goes. I couldn't find any proof that this was the actual case. But anyway, she wrote this song for Daryl Hall, believe it or not. <laughs> apparently um, Lisa heard through the Grapevine that he was looking for songs for his solo album and was intending on selling this one to him, but apparently he had enough songs by the time he went to the studio. So um she didn't write this for daryl hall i guess or he didn't end up um recording it anyway um it's pleasant but it's kind of loopy um it doesn't have a chorus which is sort of unique um it did get played to death um towards the end of this it's run i started to get really sick of this one but It did go to number one on the Hot 100, um, which did sort of surprise me. I mean, the regular Top 40 was more or less a genre of its own by this point. And unless you're like Whitney, Mariah, Janet, or Boys to Men, or you sounded like those people, you weren't really going to make it that far on the Top 40 charts in the 90s. But Lisa did. Um, This was number one for three weeks um, in August uh, between stints by... Um, All for Ones, I Swear, and boys Commands, I'll Make Love to You. And at the time, she was actually the only unsigned artist to make it to number one. Um, It didn't do as well on the alternative charts. It only peaked at number seven. And um, Lisa will make another appearance on one of our later shows. Um, She did sign with a record label, did put out some other songs. So this isn't the last of Lisa Loeb here. But... Uh, Debuting at the charts at number 31 was uh, Veruca Salt with Seether. Veruca Salt were from Chicago. Um, They were led by Nina Gordon and Louise Post, um, who were first introduced by their friend and actress, Lily Taylor. Um, They took their name um, from a character in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, Veruca was the spoiled daughter of a factory owner who had his employees sort through thousands and thousands of waka bars to get her her golden ticket to go to the factory and she ends up getting stuck in a trash chute or incinerated when she tries to grab a golden egg after which um gene wilder kind of dead she was a bad egg um by far the most annoying one of the waka kids uh, but it kind of works for their band name because um the song is also kind of annoying Um, This was the song that I alluded to earlier, which had a fucking ton of finger scrapes. Uh, The joke about this song at the time was that it sounds like the Breeders, and that was usually sung in an imitation of Nina Gordon's voice. I've already imitated Eddie Vedder and the bass line for If I Only Had a Brain, so I'm not going to subject you guys to my version of that. Um, And I remember Kim Deal actually being asked about that in some interview. And not only did she take offense to it, but she also um, defended Veruca Salt. So good for Kim Deal. This was their debut single. Um, It initially came out on the indie label Minty Fresh, and it was produced by um, Brad Wood, who also produced um, fellow Chicagoan Liz Fair. Uh, supposedly, it's about female rage, um, but if you believe their later hit Volcano Girls, it was also about Louise Post. Uh, that was kind of a Glass Onion-style joke, though, so probably not really. But she did actually inspire Everlong by um, Foo Fighters, um, I guess. Um, she dated Dave Grohl for a while. Um, he is actually dated a lot of people um, who played in bands we actually have one coming up later on believe it or not but um it's kind of sad that their second best known song referenced their best known um why anyway um i was kind of surprised that this one only peaked at number eight because this one was everywhere for a while i didn't actually mind it at first but as i was mentioning before it is kind of annoying Uh, Veruca Salt are still together, even though they haven't put out an album in about seven years. Um, Nina Gordon, who actually wrote this song, left the band for about a decade um, in the early 2000s to start a solo career. And from what I remember of her one big solo single, it sounded a lot more like Sarah McLachlan than Seether. But anyway, um, on to number 30, um, we have Cracker with Eurotrash Girl. Um, this is another holdover from the earlier alternative era. Um, lead singer David Lowry was also the lead singer of Camper Van Beethoven of uh, Take the Skinheads Bowling fame. Uh, but Lowry and um, guitarist Jenny Hickman have been the only consistent members of this band over the years. They are still around. Um, over 20 different members have passed through the ranks of Cracker. Um, David Lovering from the Pixies may have been in the band um, when this chart came out. It's kind of hard to say. They did go through three different drummers in 1994. But this song was a hidden track on their Kerosene Hat album. Um, It was listed on there as track number 69. Woo, 69. Um, Supposedly, it was put on there without their label's knowledge. Uh, the hidden track era where you'd like fast forward 15 minutes to hear Kurt Cobain yell endless nameless over and over again. I, I don't miss that at all. But anyway, um, this song follows a guy through a really shitty trip through Europe. He's constantly getting robbed getting shaken down by bribes by various people. He has to sleep in parks. He gets crabs. He has to sell his plasma at some point, but that's okay because he's eventually going to hook up with his dream Euro trash girl, and then it'll all be worth it. Uh, Lowry started out this song on his own with just like one little misadventure happening to the guy, but then when he brought it to the band, those guys just kept on adding their own ideas, and it just kind of snowballed through there. Um, the final track ended up being like eight minutes long um, because of all these stories <laughs> being added on and even the single edit for this is somewhat lengthy it's like five minutes but I've never seen the video for this one before but it's in black and white it kind of looks like it was just filmed around LA and Las Vegas um, not Europe um, they probably couldn't afford to go over to Europe And David Lowry is cavorting with, like, trashy women in it, but, like, none of them are very Euro-trashy. Maybe he was out there still searching for um, his Euro-trash girl. But anyway, on to number 29, uh, Collective Soul with Shine. Uh, Horrible band. I've never really liked these guys. Um, They never really seemed genuine to me. I mean, they just kind of seemed like a bunch of session guys or guys from a hair metal band who noticed that grunge was taking off and just decided to hop on that bandwagon and on top of that. I also got like Christian rock vibes from them. Um, I mean, maybe it was just the whole heaven let your light shine down lyric. I mean, who knows, but anyway, these guys were more or less just session guys who we were recruited by um, lead singer Ed Rollin, who was a Berkeley school of music grad, which was, something of a red flag if you're talking about rock bands um steve Vai and the dudes from dream theater went there uh but their name came from ayn rand's novel the fountainhead um roland claims that he isn't an ayn rand devotee he just liked the name when he saw it in the book um yeah but um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this song started out as part of a demo that um, Roland was just planning on selling to a publishing company and having somebody else record his songs. But a DJ in his hometown of Atlanta somehow got a copy of this. Uh, started playing it on her show. Um, people liked it. And uh, the rest is history, unfortunately. Uh, this made it to number four on this chart. Number one on the mainstream rock charts and um, number 11 on the Hot 100 and they kept on putting out more crap after this um most of which was worse than shine and they more or less became a staple of alt rock radio i think they might be popping up again in the series i forget i if they did i decided to block it out but anyway um on to number 28 um another group from atlanta the indigo girls with um, least complicated um Two women in this group, um, Amy Ray and Emily Saylors. Um, they're another early alternative holdover. I'm actually kind of surprised that they're on there. I mean, it seemed like they just kind of popped out up out of nowhere in 1989 and just kind of vanished off the face of the earth in like 1990. But no, they were still racking up alternative hits in 1994. And not only that, uh, but this song came from a top 10 platinum selling album. I mean, who knew? I mean, aside from like a million um, Indigo Girls fans, I guess. But I don't remember this song at all. I don't really remember hearing any of their songs on the radio aside from Closer to Fine. I mean, it is basically just a typical Indigo Girls song. I mean, it's not really my cup of tea, but it's not horrible. Um, This was its peak on the charts. Uh, They do have a couple of links to people who I mentioned earlier. Uh, they appeared in every edition of Sarah McLachlan's Little Affair Tour because, of course, they would have ended up being there. And um, one of Magnapop's later albums um, came out on a label owned by um, Amy Ray, So there's another connection. But anyway, on to number 27. Um, we have Toad the Rut Sprocket with um, Fall Down. Uh, these guys were from Santa Barbara, California. And... Their name came from a skit on uh, Monty Python's contractual uh, obligation album. And that track was called Rock Notes, which was basically a fake news report about fake rock bands. Uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket was the first band mentioned. But uh, the skit also includes stories about the donkeys and the dead monkeys, uh, who were originally known as Dead Salmon, then Trout, Fried Trout then Poach Trout with a White Wine Sauce, Herring, Red Herring, Dead Herring, Dead Loss, Heads Together, Dead Together, Dead Gear, Dead Donkeys, Lead Donkeys, Soul Maniere, Dead Soul, Rock Cod, Turbot, Haddock, White Bathe, Fish, Bream, Mackerel, Salmon, poached Salmon in a White Sauce, Salmonmonia, and Helen Shapiro uh, before they eventually settled on Dead Monkeys and um eric Idle, who wrote that skit thought that toe the wet sprocket was too silly to be used as an actual band name but this was actually the second toad the wet sprocket that was a real band uh the first was an early 80s british metal band uh, who as far as anybody could tell only put out one single so uh these were the only guys left but toe the wet sprocket is definitely the worst option there. I mean, I would have gone with dead together or poached trout and white wine sauce, but these guys were also holdovers from the early alternative era. Um, their first charting single came all the way back in 1989 with, uh, one little girl and they broke into the mainstream a couple of years after this with their singles, all I want and walk on the ocean, which were, uh, both tw- top 20 hits on the mainstream charts. Um, but fall fall down was the first single that they put out since they broke through with those and out of all their singles i find this one to be their most tolerable mainly because it's the most rock oriented i mean all their stuff before and after this was very mellow and by mellow i mean snore inducing uh but this one wasn't um it's it did make it to the top of this chart and it stayed up there for six weeks which Uh, put it in a tie for the second longest run at number one on the alternative charts in 94 with a Cranberry Zombie. Uh, The longest run of the year was by Morrissey's um, The More You Ignore Me, The Closer I Get, in case you're wondering, and that really surprised me. But I thought that the video for this centered around a mosh pit, which would have been hilarious because it is Toe the Wet Sprocket, Uh, but it's actually centered around a dance contest, and uh, the guy who played old in or er, blue in old school is one of the contestants in this, but anyway, we're gonna be hearing again from these guys shortly. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, number 26, um, changing gears here. Uh, we have L7 with Andres. I have not thought about this song in years or really actually decades. Out of, out of the 40 songs on this chart, this one probably rocks the most, but it's by far the silliest. Um, (laughs) The gist of it was that um, L7 met a guy named Andres. Uh, They introduced him to one of their friends, and this friend ended up hurting Andres. I I mean, I'm not sure if Andres was hurt physically or emotionally by this person, but L7 felt bad about it, and they wrote an alternative hit about it. So, yeah. Um, and speaking of guys named Andres, I worked with a guy named Andres a few years ago, but I didn't actually know that his name was Andres. Um, everybody called him Andrew, and I didn't actually find out his real name until I had to call him and got his voicemail. And it was like, hey, this is Andres. Leave a message. So the next day I came up to him, I asked him, I was like, so do you just prefer to be called Andrew or what? And he was like, no, somebody called me andrew on my first day i go by andres after everybody else but i didn't want to correct this guy and i was just like okay i mean i felt bad because i was like calling this guy the wrong name for about a year i mean i still called him andrew after that but maybe i shouldn't have i mean andres if you're out there listening which i highly doubt um, i'm sorry about that (laughs) but anyway this one peaked at number 20 on this chart and actually made the real top 40 in the uk which is kind of amazing really and while i was doing the research for this one i stumbled onto a vice feature for a few years ago called um what i learned about style from l7's andres video and some of the tips that the writer picked up were um, accessorize with poodles and ice cream cones um, pair clogs with socks and you'll always look good if you pose next to a mannequin I, i'm pretty glad that they wasted gavin McInnes's money on that but the thing that i picked up from the video is just how wholesome they looked <laughs> I mean, l7 had like a reputation for being like the dirtiest band at the time and they basically just look like soccer moms i mean Part of this is just the changing styles, but I I was kind of struck by that. But um, anyway, um, on to number 25, um, God's Child with Everybody's One. Um, this is definitely the first time I've heard this one since 94. I remember hearing this one a lot, but I didn't have the slightest clue who it was. I mean, this was the pre-internet days so you couldn't really just like google lyric i mean you had to wait for the dj to say who it was and i think i must have missed it every single time that um they did that because the band name wasn't familiar at all to me but anyway there were two guys in the band uh chris Seafried and gary de De Ah, gary de rosa and um there's a subject of a major label bidding war which was eventually won by quincy jones quest label and the guy who signed them to quest was actually um gang of four drummer hugh burnham which is kind of surprising but um this was their only hit and this was actually its peak on the chart it did do slightly better on the mainstream rock charts and after this they ended up changing their name to joe 90 for some reason and put out a couple more albums which Uh, went nowhere, and after that, um, Chris Seifert became a professional sideman and songwriter. Um, He wrote the song You All Everybody for the show Lost, um, which was supposed to be um, hit in the show by the alternative rock, Drive Shaft, um, who was played by one of the survivors, played by uh, Dominic Bonahan, and they were also supposed to be one-hit wonder, so it is kind of fitting that uh, one alternative Um, one-hit wonder wrote a song for a fictional one-hit wonder but he was also the primary songwriter for uh, the fits and the tantrums who also charted on the alternative charts sometime in the 2010s and for some reason he wasn't an actual member of the band though I'm, i'm not really sure how that works but yeah um let's see but on to number 24 uh, toe the wet sprocket with um, Something is Always Wrong. Um, yes, toe the wet sprocket again. Um, this one is pretty boring, so I'm not going to waste any time on it. It peaked at number nine. I still think that these guys should have called themselves poached salmon in a white sauce instead. But anyway, on to number 23, um, Soundgarden um, with Black Hole Sun. Um, the first of two appearances for Soundgarden on this chart. Um, this was from their Super Unknown album, and for the singles on the later half of this album, uh, the first one was Spoonman, um, which was kind of typical Garden. but the last two, they were getting a little moody. Um, These weren't like Rusty Cage or Unshined Part 2, or, or really Spoonman Part 2 either, but uh, to be honest, it probably would have been better if they had just gone in that direction, but... Anyway, uh, this was their attempt at psychedelia or their attempt at being Beatlesque, I guess. Uh, Chris Cornell was the only member of the band who had a hand at writing this one, and supposedly the title came from him just me- mishearing something on the local news, um, hearing like the anchor say "black hole sun," and it was like, "Oh, that that would be a cool song title." So, yeah. But everybody involved with the band assumed that this would be a huge hit. And guess what? It was. Um, This was actually Billboard's number one alternative song of 1994. Though, oddly enough, it did not actually make it to number one. It stalled at number two. Um, Who knows how that works? But, um, of course, I can't talk about this one without bringing up the video. Um, It takes place in an idyllic suburb. But wait, maybe it's not so idyllic. Uh, people's mouths and eyes are getting stretched out for some reason. There's a woman with a really long tongue eating flies. Uh, There's a little girl foaming at the mouth, watching a Barbie doll roast at a grill. This is bad. I mean, I hope somebody does something to make these bad people go away. Oh, wait, good. They're getting sucked into a black hole. But wait, why why is Soundgarden still there? Why aren't they being sucked into the black hole too? I mean... Are they just not subject to the laws of physics or something i mean these are all questions for another podcast i guess but um the band didn't have any involvement with the concept of the video it was all the director's idea they basically just showed up they did that with all their videos they didn't really like videos but out of all the videos that they did this was the only one where the entire band was happy with the result so um, it did win a video music award for best metal and hard rock video. Um, they beat out Aerosmith, Anthrax, and the Rollins Band, <laughs> but um, was not nominated for best video for some reason. But we're gonna hear more from these guys later. Um, number twenty-two, Frank Black with Headache. Hold on a second here. Um, uh, this was the only. Single from the Pixie front uh, former Pixie's frontman's second solo album Teenager of the Year. Um, his former bandmate, um, Joey Santiago, played on the album but not on the song. Um, Kim Deal was having a lot of success with the Breeders at the time. Um, they were probably at their peak. They just finished a stint on Lollapalooza and. As I mentioned before, um, David Lovering was very briefly in Cracker, so, I mean, technically all the Pixies were still around. Uh, This one was co-written by former Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band and Pear Ubu member, and also Pixies touring keyboardist, um, Eric Drew Feldman. Um, This was Frank's third and last single to make the alternative charts. Uh, Los Angeles and his cover of the Beach Boys, "Um, Hang Out of Your Ego, which was um, just different lyrics, the original lyrics for I Know There's an Answer, Um, made the charts before this. Um, All of those made it to the top 10. And I'd say that out of all the songs on here, this is probably my favorite one to pop up on this chart. I liked it a lot at the time, and it still stands up a couple decades and a half later. Uh, Frank has been back in the Pixies for almost 20 years now. Uh, They've put out three albums since Reuniting, which um, sort of surprised me. I just remember their first Reunion album coming out and just getting panned and slammed by everybody. And I just kind of assumed that they never bothered with another one after that. But apparently they have put out some more. And he is going by Black Francis again these days, like he did when he was originally with the Pixies. But anyway, on to number 21, um, The Pretenders with I'll Stand By You. Uh, This did get played on alternative rock radio, which is really weird. It's pretty much just a straightforward ballad. I mean, there's nothing really all that alternative about it. Uh, Chrissy Hind wrote this one with the songwriting team, um, Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg, uh, the guys who were responsible for Like a Virgin, um, Cyndi Lauper's True Colors, The Bangles' Altern- um, Eternal Flame, um, Hearts Alone, and The Divinals' I Touch Myself. Um, Hind was kind of embarrassed by this one at the time, uh, because mainly because she was embarrassed to that she set out to write such a big hit ballad, but she since embraced the song. And this was its peak on the alternative charts. Um, it matched the peak of the song on the adult contemporary charts, and it made it to number 16 on the regular Hot 100. It was the Pretender's first top 40 hit since, don't get me wrong, in 1986, but this would also be their last. Um, it's since been covered by um, Girls Aloud, who went to number one in the UK with their version, also, um, Carrie Underwood, Shakira, and Rod Stewart have also um, given this one a shot. But anyway, oh, God. Um, on to number 20, we have They Might Be Giants uh, with Snail Shell. Uh, another holdover from the early alternative era. Uh, two main guys in this group, um, John Flansburg and John Lin- Linnell were the Johns, as their fans call them, but I'm not a fan. Anyway, um, they played what was essentially just novelty music, and they were pretty annoying, too, or at least I thought they were. They peaked with um, Birdhouse in Your Soul and Istanbul, Not Constantinople, and either the extremely late 80s or the extremely early 90s. I didn't bother finding out exactly when, um, but both of those songs... Uh, received a fair amount of airplay on MTV at the time. Um my sister really liked these guys for some reason. I never really understood why and at the time Todd and I both mocked her mercilessly for liking them. But <laughs> anyway, um uh, they became a full band in 94 with their John Henry album. They added um drummer Brian Doherty who came from the Silos. And bass player um, Tony Maimoni, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce that name, from Ubu, And also Robert Quine and um, Joe Jackson's bass player, Graham Baby, also appeared on a couple tracks. And the result was more or less exactly the same. It was still pretty annoying. And the only single um, snail shell, which is charting for here, um, wasn't an exception for that. Um, It peaked at number 19. And speaking of number 19, um, at number 19, we have Nine Inch Nails. (laughs) It's it's kind of odd that this one's popping up after they might be giants, but uh, the person popping up immediately after this is even weirder. Anyway, uh, Trent Reznor wants to fuck you like an animal, everybody. (laughs) Um, Trent was sort of local. I um, mean, he wasn't originally from Northeast Ohio and he wasn't living there in 94, but he did live there when their first album, uh, Pretty Hate Machine, came out. So all the local radio stations claim them as our own. And because of that, you get like endless updates about everything Trent Reznor. Like if Trent had a hangnail, if he lost his car keys, if he had a cold, if his dog got lost, um, you're guaranteed to hear about it. And they ended up doing the same thing to a lesser extent with... Uh, Trent's protege, uh, Marilyn Manson, about a year after this. Um, Marilyn also had a much better claim to being local than Trent. But anyway, uh, because of that, um, they also played pretty much every Nine Inch Nails single to death. And you'd hear this one at least twice an hour. I mean, it was that bad. And because of that, I was shocked that this one only made it to number, number 11 on the chart. I mean, I thought it was a number one for sure. And not only that, I thought it was up there for several weeks, but no. Um, Trent has had uh, um, arguably the most success on this chart out of anybody since um, 94. non Nails kept going, cranking up Platinum albums until at least the mid-2000s. And then he's also done a ton of work with film scores um, a lot of these scores have been for the films of the director of the Closer video, um, David Fincher, and he ended up picking up Oscars for his scores for both The Social Network and Soul, and on top of that, um, he has a writing credit on the biggest single of all time. Um, that is Old Town Road by Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus, uh, which was based around a sample from the Nine Inch Nails song of Ghosts 1 through 4, and supposedly trent was invited to appear in the video but he turned them down i mean he is a fan of the song though and i like bringing that up because um todd if he's listening to it hates it but anyway um on to number 18 and number 18 we have seal Uh, seal yes seal is popping up here we have nine inch nails sandwiched between they might be giants and seal 1994 was crazy. But anyway, um, he was here with uh, Prayer for a Dying. Um, Seal really did get played on alternative rock radio for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why. But this, um, his previous single, Crazy... And um, his best known song, Kiss from a Rose, were honest to God, alternative hits, believe it or not. And this one is the oddest for me because it more or less sounds exactly like something Sting would have put out in like 93 or 94. This one did peak all the way up at number three, which was sort of a surprise. And it also did pretty well on the adult contemporary charts, which is not a surprise. I. Didn't remember the video for this, um, but it is basically just uh, Seal singing this in an all-white room. It's nothing special, but then again, neither is the song. Okay, um, at number 17, we have um, Sugar with Your Favorite Thing. Um, this was Bob Mold's second band. Um, he started this group a few years after um, Husker Du collapsed, and um, I mean after his um, first two solo albums didn't really do as well as he expected uh, the two other guys in the group were bass player um david barb and um drummer malcolm travis neither of whom were really considered any more than just sideman um mold was entirely in charge of the band and um this was the first single from their second and last album Uh, file under easy listening and it was one of only two of their songs to actually make the alternative charts the other being um helpless from their first album copper blue which is um, an unassailable um, alternative rock classic. I, I thought for sure that if I could change your mind from that album, or uh, believe what you're saying from this one were also hits, based on the fact that I uh, did remember hearing them on the radio from time to time. But I guess that wasn't the case. Uh, this one is um, just okay, I guess. Um, it's a lot better than the rest of the file under Easy Listening album, but it's um, no helpless, and it's certainly no um, like insert whatever Husker Do song you'd like in there um <laughs> but um, anyway um on to number 16 uh, we have the offspring with um come out and play um this was their first big hit and this was the band that i alluded to um with the very first song on the chart um, i mentioned that um, Brett Gerwitz um quit bad religion to focus on running his indie label epitaph due to the success of someone we had coming up and well the offspring were those guys and uh this and um the smash album that it came from were huge hits um Smash is actually the best selling album to ever be released on an indie lab label. Um, It was um, a smash, I guess. Um, But the song was inspired by gang violence in Southern California where they lived. And based on the line, you're only under 18. You won't be doing any time. I just kind of assumed that it was about um, juvenile delinquents, but I guess I was wrong about that. And after looking up the lyrics, they are somewhat serious. Uh, somewhat serious too which sort of surprised me um there are two main hooks in this song um one is a guy saying you gotta keep them separated in a mexican accent and a repeated sort of vaguely middle eastern guitar riff um and the last one was actually something that almost got them into trouble uh, because there was a 70s punk band agent orange um who uh, used a similar hook in their song, Bloodstains. And the guy who owned um, Agent Orange's label and had the rights to that song uh, announced that he was going to sue the Offspring for a songwriting credit for uh, the guys from Agent Orange. And he also wanted a penny from um, each copy of Smash that um was sold as a licensing fee and the last part would have ended up being worth um a hundred and ten thousand dollars by the way but ultimately this was all talk um the guy never filed the suit and uh, the guitar riff was just um both guitarists repeating the same scale Um, You can't really copyright a scale. And I will say that Bloodstains is a much better song than this one. Um, I didn't really like this song at the time, and I'm still not really a fan of it. But um, The Offspring did do songs that were much, much worse than this one. And uh, maybe we'll be discussing some of those later on in the series. Um, Hint, hint. Um, Number 15, um, The Dam Builders with Shrine. Um, the Dam Builders were from Hawaii. Um, they're probably the only band in this series that's going to be from Hawaii. And this is another one of those songs that I remember hearing from time to time, but I didn't have the slightest clue who it was. I I haven't heard this one in a couple decades either. It's not really that bad. It sort of reminds me of both um The Stroke's Modern Age and Yola Tango's Cherry Chapstick, both of which uh, came a few years ago after this um this one did peak at number 13 on the charts and they never made it back but um some of the members continued on in indie rock after this um lead singer david burby um started the gramercy arms uh drummer kevin march um ended up in guided by voices for a while i may have actually seen him drum at some point and uh violinist um joan wasser um passed through those bastard souls and the anthony and the johnsons Ah, uh, before um, setting out on her own as um Jonas policewoman, and she is somewhat popular in Europe too. But anyway, on to number fourteen. Um, we have Soundgarden with um, "Fell on Black Days." Yeah, these guys again. Um, this was actually the song's peak, which um really surprised me because at least in Northeast Ohio, this one was played almost as much as "Black Hole Sun." I'm not sure how it was everywhere else, but um there it was and this is one of those songs that just evokes this period for me i I can't hear this one without being transported back like instantly to 1994. um i have another one coming up that's like that too but um the video for this one wasn't nearly as interesting as a black hole sun video it's black and white live performance and all the audio in it is live too Um, they weren't just like lip syncing or miming this one and it is almost better than the studio version too. I kind of almost wish that they would have uh, put that one out also, but unfortunately I only remember seeing this one on MTV like once or twice ever compared to like the 99,000 times that I saw Black Hole Sun, but it's, it's a decent song. So yeah. Um, but on to number 13, we have Dinosaur Jr. with Field of Pain. Uh, these guys started all the way back in the 80s as Dinosaur. Um, they had to add the Junior under their name because, um, there was another band out there called the Dinosaurs who were more or less just like a super group of. Guys were in various um 60s San Francisco bands, obviously a much bigger deal than like a I- little indie band. So they had to change their name. um They were on the SST label, which was the home to Black Flag, the Minutemen, Husker Do, Meat Puppets, Sonic Youth, and so on. And they ended up leaving that label for the same reason that everybody else did. They basically just never got paid by the label. But um, they broke through in the U.K. before they made it here in the States um, with their single freak scene and also uh, their cover of The Cure is Just Like Heaven, which did actually make their real charts. <laughs> but um, but I mean, they didn't really have many alternative hits before this, but they were kind of like a known quantity. Um, Nirvana would like wear their T-shirts and appearances and stuff like that. Um, They played main stage on Lollapalooza and so on. And I mean, people knew who they were, but um, this was their first single for the Without a Sound album, which by this album, only Jay Maskis, the guitarist, lead singer, um, was the only original member left. And it's pretty typical of their sound at this point. Um, It did have a very memorable video, um, which was directed by Spike Jones. Uh, Jay Maskis is golfing around in Manhattan. Um, He tees off from the Empire State Building. Um, He's running his golf cart down busy sidewalks. He's driving his ball over various skyscrapers. He has to shoot the ball out of a fountain at some point. Um, he brutally attacks some guy for trying to grab his ball in Central Park. And eventually he gets onto the green, which is on the roof of a building that's like right in front of the world trade center. <laughs> so the last, last shot of the video is Jay Vasquez celebrating in front of the twin towers, <laughs> which is kind of funny considering um, what happened to those. But um, Jay ended up crediting the video for the song success Um and he said afterwards um, it made us bigger but not huge, uh, which is a total J Vasquez quote there. But uh, these guys are still around. Um, the original lineup got back together in 2005 and they've been touring pretty regularly since then. The song is still a feature of their sets even though like only one third of them actually played on the thing. But anyway... Uh, The next two songs we have are by the same band, so I'm just going to combine both of them here. Um, At number 12, we have um, Stone Temple Pilots with Vaseline, and at number 11, we have them again with Interstate Love Song. Uh, Both of these were from their second album, Purple, which came out at the beginning of the summer, and both of these were seemingly in heavy rotation forever I, w- I was actually kind of surprised that neither one of these popped up on the chart that i'm going to be doing for 95 but for the record um interstate love song was on here for 26 weeks and uh, vaseline was on here for 23 but it obviously seemed like much longer uh, both of these were uh, more laid back and less brooding than anything they put out as a single from their first album core uh, they're kind of lightening up a little bit but uh vaseline is mainly about um scott wyland's struggles with addiction um not exactly lighting up there but the song is lighter um basically in it um the heroine is the vaseline and scott as the fly i guess um they ended up making three different versions of the video for this um all of which use the same footage but it was just cut differently in each one um it was just slightly different and all these were um played on mtv at the same time and i don't think they ever mentioned that there are different versions and i never really noticed either but i guess they were and i've mentioned this before on an earlier episode but um interstate love song um just kind of evokes the mid 90s for me more than any other song mainly because it was played so much and it did stick around on the charts so much. I mean, and it still gets played on the radio a lot for being a 28 year old song. But every time I hear this one, I mean, like, um, fell on black days, which I just mentioned it more or less just instantly transports me back to my junior year in high school for better or worse. And it wasn't really that cool to admit that you like these guys when I was in high school. I mean, it probably isn't that cool to admit it now, but they really were a great singles band and both of these songs kind of prove that. But anyway, we're into the top 10 here with, um, live, um, with their song i alone um they were from the alternative hotbed of york pennsylvania and these guys have aged very poorly um probably worse than any other band that was popular around this time um, they're almost too earnest um, they're trying to be profound but it i have just kind of ended up usually being dumb um i alone was the second single out of five from their throwing copper album and all five of these ended up making the alternative charts and um two of these were still on the charts um a year after this so we will be hearing again from them next time around uh yay um the video for this <laughs> It was one of the most unintentionally hilarious videos ever made. Uh, The the whole thing looks like it costs maybe like 20 bucks to make. Um, They use a fisheye lens. There's like a really fake looking dead tree in the background. Uh, The drummer doesn't have his drum kit. So he's basically just like running around getting in the camera all the time. Um, Ed Kowalczyk has like a really dumb um, braid rat tail going on and he's kind of mugging for the camera uh this video was on beavis and butthead at the time and uh butthead gave him one of their most escape one of their most scathing assessments when he called them uh jack butt munch ass dumb butts and i more or less agree with that um this one only peaked at number six which sort of surprised me but anyway on to number nine uh, we have the offspring again with self-esteem uh, this was their second single. It's about relationships, or rather, a guy getting pushed around by his girlfriend. It is a slightly better song than "Come Out and Play," but I mean, really, that's not much say, uh, not saying much. But number eight, um, we have Weezer um, with "Undone," the sweater song. Uh, this was probably my favorite song at the time. I did like Weezer. I will admit that. And when I bought the blue album, um, which would have been right around September, it was actually the only time I've ever gotten like the full Jack Black in high fidelity treatment from a record store employee. I I bought this. I I brought this up to the counter. Um, The guy like looked at it, chuckled, and then he said, Weezer, kind of like in a mocking tone. And then he like waved another guy over to the counter. He was like, hey, this guy is getting Weezer. And that they both laughed at me. Uh, that 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 place is no longer a record store. By the way, they just sell bongs. I mean, they also sold bongs in 1994, uh, but that's another story. Um, this was the first single from the Blue album, or just Weezer. Um, they've since released um, Green, Red, White, and White, Teal, and Black self-titled albums. Um, not really imaginative. guys at weezer but um this one has kind of a lazy slackerish feel to it and they also do the whole pixies quiet loud thing which is probably what drew me into this i mean i was a total sucker for that at the time and to be honest i still kind of am and um, according to rivers cuomo um his inspirations for this were um uh, the velvet underground and metallica's song um welcome home sanitarium which does have a very similar opening riff to this it's like rivers was trying to make the lulu album happen two decades before it existed but um the video for this was also shot by spike jones um it's probably his lowest concept video um he basically just shot weezer lip-syncing the song in an empty soundstage over and over until the point where the band just got completely bored with doing it and then he used that take for the video. Um, In it, uh, Matt Sharp is just barely touching his bass and he's like sitting on the floor for half of the song. Uh, Patrick Wilson is seemingly playing an entirely different song. And for part of it, he's just waving his sticks around. Um, Rivers Cuomo is strumming, but he's not actually touching his fretboard. Um, Brian Bell is actually trying though. And that probably is the funniest part that one of them is still trying. And they actually shot about 10 more takes after this one. So who knows what they are doing by the end of like this marathon session of lip syncing with Spike Jones. But anyway, um, this has always been a pretty popular song for other bands to cover live, probably because there's not really much to it. It's recognizable and people just like it, I guess. Um, The Offspring, um, who we just had, um, Bloodhound Gang, Mac DeMarco. Uh, Flaming Lips and Titus Andronicus, among others, have all covered this live. Um, But anyway, um, we'll be hearing from Weezer again in our next installment from a song on the Blue album. Um, It was still around. Number seven, um, we have Candlebox with Far Behind. Uh, Grunge copycats from Seattle. Um, They really had no connection at all with the scene that produced Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and so on. Uh, They just happened to be playing around in Seattle while all those bands were taking off, and they kind of got swept up in the record company Bonanza that was going on up there. I mean, every label needed a Seattle band. It didn't matter if you were good or not. Um, You just had to be from Seattle, Washington. Um, If you had a pulse and a guitar, you could probably get a record label deal. (laughs) But anyway, this was a a ballad. It was written as a tribute to late Mother Mother Love Bone singer um, Andrew Wood, uh, the same guy who um, the Temple of the Dog album was written for. Um, Lead singer Kevin Martin met him once while he was working at a shoe store. Um, that is probably like their only connection at all to the actual grudge scene. But anyway, this was their biggest hit. It peaked at number four here and went to number 18 on the regular top 40. And it was memorably used in an episode of Eastbound and Down. Um, one of Kenny Power's teammates dies and um, Kenny shows up at the cemetery playing this on a boombox. And then he sets the boombox on the guy's casket airy guitars for a while, and then launches into a completely absurd eulogy. Um, it's uh, it's worth checking out. It's it's hilarious. But anyway, um, Box will be back in a couple of other episodes. Uh, for some reason, I'm not really sure why, but they are. Um, let's see. But on to number six, um, Cheryl Crow. Yeah, um, Cheryl Crow with all I want to do. Cheryl um, Crow did actually get a lot of alt rock radio airplay at the time, and it seems really weird now. Um, but this was the second single from her Tuesday Night Music Club album. I, I told the story about the Tuesday Night Music Club in one of our earliest episodes. But basically, the whole thing started out as a jam between LA um, studio session guys, one of whom was dating Cheryl Crow, and cheryl more or less um, hijacked this group to get her to get them to write songs for her um, album all of which included her on the credits even though she didn't really actually do anything but the album took off and all of these guys expected that cheryl would just call them up to uh, go on tour with her but the call ended up never coming she um, ditched them all and hired another band. I mean, they did have their name on the cover, and they had songwriting credits on a multi-platinum album, but, you know, it's not the same thing. Uh, the lyrics for the song were taken almost entirely from a poem called Fun by a guy named Win Cooper. Um, they were stumped on the lyrics for this one, and one of the guys just happened to have a uh, Wynn Cooper's book, which was called um, Country of Here Below, which was somewhat obscure there was only like 500 copies of this made uh, but he had it with them and they kind of flipped through it and they found this poem fun and it basically ended up being the entire lyrics for this song uh cooper was thrilled that they used the the poem too and he nearly gave it away to them for free uh um, when they asked for his permission which would have been a horrible idea but ultimately he ended up wising up on that and supposedly the guy who he was having the conversation with in the poem um tried to sue to get part of the writing part of his writing credit also which is kind of hilarious but anyway um this was the biggest hit of cheryl Crow's career um it peaked at number two on the regular top 40. um went to number four on this chart and number one on the adult contemporary charts and It also um, earned Crow Grammys for Record of the Year and Best Female Pop Performance. And um, I'm also kind of surprised that Jerry Rafferty never sued her for this because it is extremely similar to Stuck in the Middle with You. I mean, people have lost plagiarism cases for songs that were less similar than this, but... This won't be the last time that we hear from Cheryl. Um, She's actually going to pop up in a couple of episodes. So um, Alternative Rock Radio was not sick of Cheryl Crow yet. But number five, we have um, Jesus and Mary Chain with Sometimes Always. Um, Jesus and Mary Chain were led by two brothers from Scotland, the Reeds. Uh, Jim was a singer. William was a guitarist. Uh, they're another holdover from the early alternative era. Uh, these guys had three top three alternative hits before this. Uh, the best known of those being "Head On," which um, the Pixies also took to to the alternative charts about a year or two after that. But they're a presence um, before this chart even existed. I mean, you had the Psycho Candy album, the Darklands album. Uh, just like Honey and so on. I think they may have been on the soundtrack of a John Hughes movie at some point. Um, But anyway, um, this was a duet between um, Jim Reed and Hope Sandoval from Mazzy Star, and it was inspired by um, some of Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra's duets. Um, They'd been trying to work with uh, Sandoval for a while, and this kind of gave them a chance to do that. Um, I really liked this one at the time, but it seemed to vanish from the radio almost immediately like it was everywhere for like a week or two and then it was just gone uh but the chart history for this song doesn't really bear that out um it was in or near the top 10 for most of of september and october uh, but it did disappear from the radio in cleveland i know i was actually in cleveland or near cleveland But anyway, this was Jesus and Mary Chain's last single to make the alternative charts. Uh, But we will be hearing from Hope Sandoval again because at number four, we have Mazzy Starr with Fade Into You. Um, Mazzy Starr were a duo. Um, Hope Sandoval, who we just talked about, was their lead singer and lyricist. Uh, David Roback, who was a former member of Rain Parade and Opal, was their... Um, guitarist slash producer primary composer and this group was more or less a continuation of opal with um sandoval uh taking the place of kendra smith um opal's lead singer and they charted once before this on the alternative charts with a cover of uh slap happy's um blue flower off of their first album which is a little bit more rock oriented than this one it has sort of the same sort of a similar field as something off of um, velvet underground's white light white, he- uh, white heat album um, and they were still sort of in velvet's territory for this one um, but it's more like something that would have been like on their third album or loaded it's really hazy mellow kind of melancholic it's a ballad um, there wasn't really anything out there that sounded like this at the time I didn't really appreciate it back in 94 i i thought it was kind of boring but it has grown on me a lot over the years to the point where i think that this may have been the best single released in this time period i mean it really is an amazing song and uh this made it to number three on this chart um but just barely missed out on the top 40 i mean it did make it on the cash box and the airplay charts though um they only had one other charting single after this um holla which was Released just after this, um, and it was actually a re-release because it was off of their first album. But um, that one is also pretty decent. Not as good as this one, though. Uh, number three, um, we have Love Spit Love with "I Am Wrong" or "Am I Wrong?" <laughs> Love Spit Love were um, formed by former um, psychedelic furs members um, Richard and Tim Butler. Uh, the previous band was sort of a force in the early days of this chart, something which I'd never realized, but it totally makes sense uh, because they fit right in there. But um, three of their singles made it to the top of this chart. Um, All That Money Wants, um, House, and Until She Comes. And the last one that w- of these was the only one that even seemed familiar to me, but it was very typical of that era of alternative music and i'm pretty sure that like if this chart had existed in like 1985 or 86 uh love my way or pretty in pink their most recognizable songs would have also made it to the top of the charts but anyway um this formed this band was formed in what was supposed to be a hiatus for them Uh, the butlers recruited a couple of guys from their opening band and basically just um, pressed on. Uh, their, their sound wasn't really that much different from the Psychedelic Furs. Um, they probably could have just gotten away with calling this band the Psychedelic Furs, to be honest. Um, but this was their only really big hit. They did make it back on here a couple of other times, but this was the only one that actually made it above 30. Um, it's it's a ballad. It's pretty forgettable. Um, usually when this popped up on the radio, I would just change it to another station uh, the butlers eventually did reform psychedelic first and it was basically just this band with like one other guy from their original lineup and um two of these guys um ended up in guns and roses uh, believe it or not uh they're in the current lineup of guns and roses that's um guitarist richard forrest and frank ferrer i'm not really sure how that happened maybe uh Maybe Axel is a psychedelic first fan, or maybe he's a Love Spit Love fan. Who knows? But anyway, on to number two, um, we have The Counting Crows with um, Einstein at the beach for an Eggman in parentheses. Um, Kind of a typical Counting Crows song. Uh, This was one of the first songs that the group recorded after they first formed, but they ultimately... Uh, left this one off of their debut album, August and Everything After. Um, Adam Duritz had this to say about it at the time. Uh, David Bryson, who's um, the Counting Grows guitarist, and I wrote this a couple of years ago in a hotel room in LA. I was trying to sleep, but I kept humming guitar parts in my head and then making David get up and play them. And then David um, kept hearing melodies in his head, and he kept waking me up to sing them. Um, We finally finished the song at four in the morning and recorded it on the answering machine in the hotel room. I always loved the song, but it didn't really seem to fit on the album. It wasn't mopey enough, and it probably would have stayed buried if their um, record label Geffen wasn't looking for outtakes for a rarities collection. Um, That album was called um, DGC Rarities Volume 1, and seemingly every person I knew in 1994 had this one. Uh, it had the original version of Nirvana's Stay Away, which was called Pay to Play. Um, a whole song that was long rumored to have been written by Kurt. Um, one of the best teenage fan club songs. Uh, one of the best Weezer songs. One of Beck's goofiest songs. A song that Sonic Youth probably made up on the spot. And then stuff by like forgotten or forgettable bands like Cell, That Dog, St. Johnny, along with this Counting Crows song. And um, Geffen saw potential in the song and decided to put out a, put it out as a single. And it went to the top of this chart for one week in August. Um, the band refused to make a video for this or the last single from the album, um, which was "Ranking," mainly because uh, they were afraid of being overexposed. But uh, the fact that there wasn't a video out um, didn't hurt them. Obviously, um, both this and "Ranking" were played a lot. Um, but the band has rarely ever played this one live. Um, there's actually only two cases of this ever being played listed on their set list FM page. Um, the most recent being eight months before this chart came out. Uh, they've actually covered um, Madonna's borderline that they've ever played this one. But these guys will pop up again on the, uh, the series. So we're not done with the Counting Crows yet. Um, but we're on to number one here. Uh, The top of the heap, the top of the mountain here, and it's Green Day um, with Basket Case. Um, We started out with California Punk, and we're ending it with California Punk. I will admit that I liked Green Day at the time. I I bought Dookie shortly after Longview came out as a single on cassette, no less. (laughs) This was actually the last album I bought on cassette. I didn't own a CD player at the time. And I pretty much play that tape all of the summer of '94. I didn't have my car yet, but whenever I borrowed my dad's, um, he had a tape deck, so I'd also bring it with him. So I'd listen to the car too. Um, uh, but by this point, I was starting to get sick of them though. Um, but anyway, um Green Day initially broke in with Longview, which was their um ode to masturbation, I guess. And it was actually I'm not the only song on Dookie that was about masturbation either, Um, but anyway, (laughs) um, that one made it to the top of this chart in June, and they were also one of the headliners on Lollapalooza that year, but the thing that stood out to me as being their star turn was actually their appearance on Woodstock 94, Uh, which is the forgotten Woodstock. Um, Everybody has forgotten about that one. Uh, There wasn't a concert film. Um, Nobody's ever made a Netflix documentary about how much of a train wreck it was, or even a second Netflix documentary about how much of a train wreck it was. But basically 300,000 people showed up, watched bands for three days. It rained a lot. And then everybody forgot about it, even though it was a very big deal at the time trust me on this Uh, the rock and roll hall of fame actually had a display devoted to it when I first went there in 95 they had like a mannequin wearing Trent Reznor's muddy clothes and um, red hot chili pepper's light bulb costumes I I wonder if any of that is actually still there I mean probably not I'm assuming not. But anyway, um, Green Day ended up getting into a huge mud fight with a crowd, um, something which was played over and over on MTV for, like, the next couple weeks after that. And then right in the middle of that, they released this as, as a single. And then, whammo, they're big stars. And, I mean, even without that, this probably would have been a hit. I mean, it's the most polished song on the album. And the most obvious single but i mean woodstock certainly helped out with that uh, this was number one for five weeks um before being replaced by rem's um what's the frequency kenneth which still hadn't been released yet um it did miss out on the regular top 40 um but it did go to the top 20 on the airplay charts and uh, we will be hearing from green day again um in the next episode actually But anyway, that does it for um, September of 1994, um, the first installment, the first installment of six, I think. Uh, But anyway, I'll see you next time in 1995. Bye.